The following episode of WNET Up Next featuring Nina Chowdhury, producer of Time for School 2003 to 2016, was originally presented in September of 2016. We are offering it again to coincide with the encore broadcast of Time for School on Tuesday, March 6, 2018. The film is also available for viewing at the PBS website, pbs.org. From WNET in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart. Welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our programs. Our guest today is an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose work has often been seen on our air, most notably the foreign affairs documentary series Wide Angle and Women, War and Peace. During her two-season stint as the senior producer of Wide Angle, the series received three Emmy nominations and two Overseas Press Club Awards. Her latest project also has its origins with Wide Angle. It's called Time for School, 2003 to 2016, and it has a fascinating history. The film is being featured as part of PBS's Spotlight Education Week, and it's my great pleasure to welcome producer, director, and co-writer Nina Chowdhury to WNBC. Up next, Nina. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Time for school, two thousand three to two thousand sixteen. Now, this was based on a project of the UN, a vow that was made in the year two thousand as part of the Millennium Development Goal. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. Um, so the UN in two thousand set these Millennium Development Goals. At the time, there were more than a hundred million children out of school who had never set foot in a classroom. And series producer of Wide Angle at the time, Pamela Hogan, decided, you know what? Let's follow some of these children who are starting school for the first time, and let's see how do they do? What challenges do they face? What what does it look like over those 15 years while they, from the beginning of school to the end of their what supposed high school graduation? It almost was this global report card of sorts, sort of how is the UN doing? How is the world doing in its responsibility to these children? And this was to be done over a period of, of 12 years. 12 years. So the idea was they w we would start filming them from when they started school, and then we would check in every three years, and we would see how they were doing. And then their supposed high school graduation would be 12 years later. Did they make it? Right. A lot of suspense in this program. Yeah. How, how did you f choose the individual children and the countries that they, they live in? Well, so the UN had set this goal. And so as a result of setting this goal, there were a lot of interesting things happening in many different countries of the world. And so at the time, producer and director Judy Katz, who worked on the first and second um, installments of the series, she went and she she looked at different places where were interesting things happening. So, for example, in Kenya, they had eliminated primary school fees. So the schools were flooded with children. So we were like, let's find one of these kids and let's see how they're doing over these 12 years. In Benin, a country in Western Africa, had the greatest gender gap. Many girls were out of school. Brazil had a fund where they Brazil, gave grocery money to the families. And, and But one of the conditions of Bolsa Familia, this program in Brazil, was that kids had to stay in school. Mm -hmm. If the kids had too many absences, they would lose this stipend that they would get. In India, there was a local grassroots initiative to educate girls who are working during the day to educate them at night. And in Afghanistan... In 2001, there were no girls in all of Afghanistan who were in school. And when the Taliban left, girls started going to school for the first time. 
And Shugafa, our student in Afghanistan, was had been living in a refugee camp in Pakistan. And so she was 11 years old by the time she returned to Afghanistan. So they were so she wanted to go to so she could go to school. Mm-hmm. And but she was 11 years old. So the UN had some catch-up classes for girls like her who had to catch up on their studies over time and she attended these classes and thrived. And thrived. Yeah, yeah. was able to be be in school with her peers. And, of course, I think you've, I don't know if you mentioned, but uh, in Benin, Nanavi could have been in a voodoo convent, which I, I don't know much about, but there was a decision made to let a certain number of girls not go to the convent and actually attend attend school. That's right. Um, and in Benin, there was a statewide initiative to get more girls like Nanavi in rural villages to get them in school because there was no one in her village who had gone to school before this this initiative. And the voodoo priest, voodoo's the state religion in Benin, he allowed one girl in each of the families to go to school for the first time, to go for the first time instead of going to the voodoo convent where mm-hmm. they were really that what they were prepared to do in these convents was to be married, have a lifetime of housework and marriage. Right. In terms of uh, producing the segments with these children, how did you find and put together a team of producers to do that? Well, Judy Katz um, was largely responsible for both finding these kids. Um, she, In order to find these kids, one thing I'd like to add is that she contacted organizations on the ground, UNICEF, for example, who were working with these kids, who were helping them get back into school, who were responsible for some of these countrywide initiatives. And they helped set the stage and find children for us. Then she would deploy a field producer who'd worked in the region, who had a lot of experience filmmaking, and they would then go out and meet maybe two or three of those children that the UNICEF, that the UNICEF coordinator mm-hmm. had initially cast. Okay. And then we would decide which one. And what kind of experience was that initially for these children to be followed around with cameras? Oh, you could see, you see that change in them as you watch the film. In the very beginning, they're young. They're five, they're six years old, some are eight or nine. And they're bright-eyed, and they're eager to learn, and you see that. And and But they didn't have as much voice about what was happening. They were young children. But now they all can give voice to their own stories as they do, and they are not. They are very articulate young adults. Now, did the Millennium Summit participants have any say in, in how the film was, was being rolled out? No, no. The film was very much editorially independent. Mm-hmm. And I know that in public media we always like to talk about funding. Tell me about that, because you were starting to explain to me that this film, unlike the previous uh, parts of the series, is actually an independent film created by you, and then uh, you've had to raise money and, and go to various sources to get your own funding to put this on the air. Well, this, was, this film started um, as part of Wide Angle, which was a PBS series and received PBS funding as well as funding from a number of organizations. In Time for School, the first three installments of the series were funded as part of this overall series. This go-around, because Wide Angle no longer existed, 13 originally went out to look for money for this film in, this, in much the same way, but as an independent film. And somewhere along the line, we had we'd received probably about two-thirds of our funding, but there was still a budget shortfall. And ITVS, Independent Television Service, came in and gave the final funding to make the film. And they fund independent filmmakers. So they funded me and my production company. And together, my production company and 13 
made it uh, made this film. Made it all happen. And your involvement uh, has gone to a very, very active filmmaking involvement for this particular chapter. Can you reflect that's, on that? Yeah, that's right. Um, I've always been involved with the film as, as a producer on the series, the Wide Angle series. But this was the first time that I was taking an active role in the filmmaking and in the edit room. And me and Andrew Fredericks, who was the editor of the film, worked in close collaboration to make this final film. You know, for those of us who go back to 2003 and see the original uh, documentary when these kids were just these adorable little, I guess most of them five-year-olds, there were seven children uh, in in very widely uh, diverse countries around the world. And uh, and I noticed in watching this film that we don't see the children from Japan and Romania. Was a decision, a particular decision made to to drop (laughs) that storyline? Yeah, that was a very tough decision because those characters um, and students mean a lot to us as well and are integral to this entire Time for School project. Ultimately, we had to make this decision because the film was 90 minutes, and we decided we wanted fewer characters so we could really get deep and involved with each of these personal trajectories. And we decided on the five we did because each of them were struggling in some ways to stay in school. And each of those children, our student in Afghanistan, Shugafa, um, our student in India, Niraj, Brazil, Jefferson in Brazil, and Job in Kenya, and Nanavi in Benin, they all were going to school for the first time because of efforts that were made in each of these countries to get skits in school, which wasn't necessarily the case in our yeah, Romanian Japan It's almost stories. obvious from the very beginning when you see the Japanese uh, student and the Romanian student that they're going to make it. Their whole society, their culture, their parents, it's very much a part of what would be expected, what's going to happen for them. But the, the other children, uh, this is That's where right. the, the suspense lives. Uh, how, how far are they going to go? Are they going to go all the way through school? And what's going to really happen for them? One of the things I would say, though, that is great is we were able to film with both Reluca in Romania and Ken in Japan. Mm-hmm. And we did film with them this last couple of years and finished their stories as well. Last year, when the UN met in 2015 to evaluate these Millennium Development Goals. Oh, interesting. We were able to create segments on several of the children that aired on PBS NewsHour. So those two stories will be online. And I'm assuming they both graduated from high school. They did both, <laughs> they both graduate. graduated. Yes, they both so did and are both in university now. Well, what's it been like for you personally to revisit these children every three years? Do you find that in addition to your professional filmmaker look, you develop a, a, a bond, a feel for these kids? Very much so. But what is very interesting about this project is that I've never met any of these okay, kids. Okay, that's what I'm going to ask you that. And no one who's worked on this film has met every single one of them. But all of us, and there's many of us who have committed the last 13 years to the making of this film, feel very close to each of these children. They've, they've grown up before our very eyes. And the field producers have, who have met the kids have formed very deep and intimate relationships with them. And because of technology today, can now stay in touch in a way that they weren't able to back in 12 years ago. That's very interesting. So were you on site for any of the filming at all? Did you uh, no. ever go no, on location? I never, never, I never, never been on location. Yeah, no, never met any of the kids. Of course, this personally. is— I've yeah. talked to some of them, uh-huh. I mean, via email now, yeah. but I haven't. 
How much time was spent with uh, for for each kid in, in in terms of this? How how many right. hours and days of filming went into these I stories? I would say on average it was about a week to ten days each time we went and shot with them, and we filmed with them at least four times each of the students. Mm-hmm. Well, it comes off in a wonderful way, and it's such an eye-opening experience, the, the, the old cliché about putting a face on a problem. But it really happens with this. You see these individual children uh, full of hope, joy, and what happens and how life uh, affects uh, what happens to them over what seems like a long period. But it's a very short period, but so much happens to each of them in that period in their individual ways. We were surprised. When we went in 2003 and then went again in 2006, we didn't expect in three years so much would have changed. And so much did change in even those three short years. I mean, two of our characters had parents who died. Yes. So their lives are not stable. Then you have the young girl in Afghanistan who, I, I won't give it away, but as a father who's extremely... Uh, behind her efforts in education. Very much so. And I have to say, one of the things that I learned while watching these children and the lives and the struggles that they've gone through is nothing matters more than that kind of support. There's one thing about increasing access to education and giving them the opportunity, but there's so much about the support and the community involvement and really teaching about the importance of education. And because Shugafa's father was very supportive of her education and of girls' education in general, not just his family, but the girls, all the girls in the villages, he would tell other families why it was important for girls to go to school, which was so critical in a country like Afghanistan. Were there any particular challenges in putting this last episode together? So this time around, we had visited the kids in 2009, and then we didn't actually see them again till 2014, 15, and in Shugafa from Afghanistan's case, 2016. Many years, yeah. and important years. So one of our challenges, even in crafting the story, was sort of how do we sort of update each of these kids mm-hmm. when so much has happened? And so we really, how do you tell the backstory and the present-day story in sort of this short period of time? Period of time. And when we got in touch with Shugafa in Afghanistan to film with her, she was actually hesitant about us coming back. Because in 2009, when we were with her, the neighbors, after a few days of filming, kept wondering, who are these people who are coming and filming with them? What are they doing? And the neighbors started talking and causing trouble for Shugafa and her family, asking questions. Why are you on television? Why are you doing this? Are they paying you? And they didn't like that. That was unwanted attention. Mm-hmm. So when we asked to come this time, a couple of things had changed. One, they didn't want that to happen. And now the Taliban had were, were more present in their community than they were back even in 2009. So they were there were security, valid, very valid security concerns about us coming back. And there had been particularly uh, awful attacks on young women All in over the country, yeah. I mean, not as much. There were a couple of attacks in her particular province, but not as many. But there was still, the Taliban had taken hold of her province, and which wasn't the case before. Mm-hmm. So they were concerned um, about us coming back and having that unwanted attention from neighbors, and then maybe someone would see. So... They first had said they didn't want us to come back, and it took some 
discussion and, and, and convincing that, we, and we decided they finally agreed to allow us to come back, but we took every precaution possible for mm -hmm. both their safety and our team safety and went to their homes without our cameras being seen. And we had a very small team. And so no one would see. We were limited to filming only in their homes. We didn't film outside in her community, which we had done in previous installments. And we had to obviously, you know, we were concerned for her safety and um, her family's safety. But you were talking about, you know, the influence of parents on these kids. And not only do we see a, such a positive example in Shugafa's father in Afghanistan, but you see a couple of sort of negative uh, things. You see selfishness of parents of why they want their children to have education. You know, if more than one basically comes across as, I want my child to have education so they can take care of me. Uh, I don't know if you I, would oh, agree that's... with that, but uh, th there's there's a certain subtle thing. There's one father who almost seems to be stealing from his his, uh -oh. his child uh, along right. the way. Oh, yeah. But I was just thinking a... the, the 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 influence of the parent and the support of the parent seems so strong universally oh. uh, to 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 whether it's successful or not. And one of my uh, favorite trajectories, personal trajectories in the film, is Niraj. And Niraj's parents. Niraj is from India. Yes. And Niraj's parents in the beginning really don't understand why it's important to educate the They're girls farmers. and the family. They need the work of Niraj to graze the cattle and help support the household. And so she goes to school at night. And in the beginning, you even hear Niraj's parents both say, what good is education going to do for her? But at the end... They see the value of it, and it's amazing. It's great to see that. And I really contrast the lives of Niraj and Nanavi in some ways because Niraj didn't have that familiar support and then doesn't, was, isn't able to stay in school for very long. But Nanavi, whose family was supportive of her education, and not only was it her family, the community was very supportive of it. There was a statewide initiative. They sent people to the community to to educate the parents about how important education was for the girls, how it could reduce infant mortality. Daughters could have healthier babies. Literacy was important for these young girls and for the whole community at large. And because of that, Nanavi was able to go much farther than any most girls in her community ever had before. That's a great story. Now, the Millennium Goal... Uh, it's 2016 now. The goal was set for 2015. Where are we now? Where are we now? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. So when the goal had, was first set, we were on track. Kids were getting going back to school. They were The number went from over 100 million, was dropping to 75 million. And then the global financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009. And that really had an impact on spending, on education spending. So today, I think the number today is 57 or 58 million kids are still out of school or never have never set foot in classrooms. And the number was halved, but they didn't quite get to zero. But progress is being made. Progress was made and was just was stalled. And I think I read recently that there's been a new goal underneath that, that millennium thing for an, another 20 years to go even further and uh, deal with other issues well, that of, was, of world poverty. Right. And, and one of the things that was 
that comes out, I think, in our film and then also when they took stock of these goals, well, that access is important, but it's not everything. There's quality. And sometimes when you do increase access, like we did in Kenya, and kids flood the system, but then not you enough have, teachers, not enough teachers yeah. or not enough funding for teachers um, t- and not enough classrooms and not enough desks. The work continues, mm-hmm. as they say. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, your gratification level for what this film, what these films have meant in, in the past. And uh, I, I know that some of the previous chapters have had great impact here in the United States, particularly in our yes. own area. It's amazing how um, what an impact this film has had in its previous incarnations. In 2006, there was we've had lots of screenings in schools um, all around the country, uh, middle schools, high schools, universities. And um, in one middle school in Long Island, um, they watched this film in 2006 and fell in love with Job. And but Job so, is the Job, young boy from yes, Kenya. Yes, they fell in love with Job from Kenya. And first of all, they were all so moved by the struggles these children in all the countries had with school that they didn't realize how lucky they were <laughs> to mm-hmm. be going to school themselves. They did. It's a. It's a something we take for granted here. And they saw, as I was saying before, that they didn't have desks, access to books, libraries. So they reached out to the school and said, "What can we do?" And they said, we need, we need these resources. The students on Long Island band together and started having bake sales and car washes yeah. and started raising money. They created friendship bracelets. And they sent this money to Ayani Primary School, where Job attended in Kenya, and they built a library. And they bought desks for the students. And this was just one school. One they called school. themselves the Kenya Crew. That's right. I, I, I sort of like that. Now, there was one of those and students one of the who students. then went on to college and studied in Kenya, and she had an interesting meeting. She did. She wanted to meet Job, and she spent her junior year abroad in Kenya, and we were filming, coincidentally, at the exact same time. So we took our cameras, and we filmed Job and Lauren Blackburns, her name, and we film them meeting for the first time. And Joe really changed Lauren's life. That's really a great, great story. So this is sort of the final chapter of, of this story. What, what do you hope for the impact for this one to be? One of the things that was particularly great about working on this film was that we really allowed the children's voices to be heard and the families and the teachers. And we don't have another narrator telling us this story. And I and I believe these immersive journeys where you can be with the with the students as they go through their struggles can have real deep impact on the viewer and can really connect with the struggles each of these children are going through and have gone through and they're representative of a vast number of children all over the world I highly recommend it it's extremely moving different stories in different ways the idea of potential is the idea that came to me in this story, the potential for these children and how strong it is when they're, when they're little and the things that uh, kind of beat up on them along the way and who can survive. With, and again, it's not done alone. You know, it takes a village. It takes, uh, it takes the families. But uh, it, it's, it's extremely moving 
again, in this country, we take everything for granted. Uh, watch this film. Maybe you'll be a little bit more grateful for your education system, as problematic as it may be. You know, I, I was wondering about the future because these are such interesting characters, and you've you've made stars of them in in a way. They have a filmic. Uh, character quality. We we love watching them. We want to know what's coming back. Any idea that you would revisit them a la 7-Up, that series, over another few years? Well, that was, you know, the inspiration for mm -hmm. the series was 7-Up, mm -hmm. to go back every three or four years. The so, longitudinal. Yeah. I, had to, I just had to say that word. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in so many ways, it's the opposite of parachute journalism. It's like we're, we're, we're in there. We're meeting them. We're with our kids. There are no official plans to go back. Um, I know, um, especially after this last round of filming, um, we are staying in closer touch with all the students because of technology. We're able to do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of our kids now have cell phones and... WhatsApp, yeah. and we, we are able to stay in touch with them in a way that we haven't been before. Um, but uh, there's no official plans to yeah. film okay. with them. I'm going to put you on the spot now. <laughs> no. How did you get involved in all this? What what brought you into the world of documentary filmmaking? Oh, documentary filmmaking. Well, I mean, again, I like telling stories that move you. And the way you tell a story that I find moving is to really spend time with the people that you're filming with, that we that documentary filmmaking allows you to do, um, in a way that other news reporting it's a it's a way to get behind the headlines, mm -hmm. really understand what's going on in whatever the particular story is that you're covering. What's the most difficult, or were some of the most difficult things that are involved in in doing this work? Unfortunately, I'll have to say funding. The money. The, the money. money again. It's money. It really is. Funding for, for projects like this have been dwindling even in the 15 or so years that I've been working in documentary filmmaking. And how about the rewards? The rewards is doing a story like this. The, being able to do a story where you can follow a story for 12 years was honestly one of the most rewarding experiences one can have in documentary filmmaking. What's, what's up next for you? Well, before I went back to um, working on Time for School full-time, before this last funding came in, I was the project director for a public media initiative at WNET called Chasing the Dream, and uh, it's a reporting initiative on poverty. So a couple of projects that I was working on as the project director for this initiative are coming out also in the fall, mm -hmm. one of which is a documentary on the minimum wage which is also a PBS documentary that will air in um, the beginning of October. Okay. And I also worked in collaboration with WNYC's On the Media on a radio documentary series about uh, the anniversary of welfare reform, which just passed. And that will also be coming out this fall. Nina, it's great to have you with us here on oh. WNAT Up Next. We've been talking about your new documentary film, Time for School 2003 through 2016, with Nina Chowdhury. Is there a website for the there film? There is a website for the film. And, um, and what would that I be? I think it's time, timeforschool.org. Timeforschool.org. Okay. A great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another edition of WNAT Up Next. We'd love you to share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNAT.org. And of course, we do request, demand, and ask and plead that you become a subscriber. WNAT Up Next is presented by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNAT New York. I'm Tom Stewart. You've been listening to WNAT Up Next, 
featuring an interview with Nina Chowdhury, producer of the documentary film Time for School, 2003 to 2016, re-airing on WNET 13 on Tuesday, March 6, 2018. The film is also available for viewing on the PBS website, pbs.org.